Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide-ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL, doing business and doing life. What up, DBDL fam? Kristen here. And today, Brad's going to be talking with Wally Illiberry. He is a leader in the mortgage industry and the author of 24-7 Mindset. Wally's been in the mortgage business for 20 plus years and has a ton of wisdom when it comes to leveraging people, systems, and technology to scale a business. So in this episode, Wally's going to share his story. He's going to talk about the problems that he faced in his own business that are preventing him from achieving unlimited growth and freedom. So background, Wally's mortgage was considered successful awesome, great, successful with the air quotes, but he was burning the candle at both ends. And plus he realized that 97% of his business was reliant on referrals from a single lead source, which is a huge business risk that we call marketing diversification. So while he's going to talk about the exact system that he developed to diversify his referral network, refine his systems and scale from a solitary $40 million loan officer to a team that consistently closes $200 million in loans while, okay, best part, only working 24 hours a week and taking a minimum of 20 weeks of vacation every single year. So this conversation is about how he did it and how you can potentially apply a similar approach to your advisory firm. Uh, conversation is an absolute must listen. So before we get to the show, we've got a special gift for DBDL listeners. We've got a bunch of copies of Wally's book, 24-7 Mindset, Build a Business That Pays You 24 Hours a Day, Seven Days a Week While Only Working 24 Hours a Week and Seven Months a Year. And we're going to be giving them all away until they're gone. So if you want your free copy, what you can do is text the number 49 to the DBDL Insider phone number. It's in the show notes. I'll give it to you now, but it's 785-800-3235. We're going to reply back to your text asking you to leave an honest rating and review of the show. And once you've done that, we're going to grab your mailing address, ship you a copy of the book. That's it. Please note text message and data rates may apply. You can opt out of receiving text messages at any time by replying stop to any message you receive and quick apology to our international listeners outside of the US. Shipping prices are crazy high. We can only ship these domestically. So please support Wally and just go grab a copy at your local bookstore or on Amazon. If you want the show notes of this episode, including links to all the resources, books mentioned, and people discussed, you can grab those at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 49. As always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, today's conversation with Wally Elibieri. Welcome back to another episode of Do Business, Do Life. I'm joined by Wally Ilibieri today on the show. Welcome, Wally. How are you? Hey, thank you so much. Uh, super duper impressed. You, you pronounce the last name absolutely perfectly. That's uh, that's a tall task to ask. We are off to a good start. It can only get better <laughs> from here. First off, it's always fun. We were just talking before we went live here. I know you also do a podcast and... We have like 74 different connections we all pieced together uh, before we went live here. But John Israel, who's been on the show a couple of times, was kind enough to introduce us. And um, it's always fun. You know, I've, I have this theme in life, great humans connect with other great humans. And, and just once again, that rule comes to be true. So I know you're a growth mindset guy. I read 50 books a year. How has that played out in your life? Just those connections and how you see life when it comes to personal growth. Well, I'd say, you know, I read a quote is, is back probably 13 years ago that show me what you're reading today and I'll show you who you will be tomorrow. And that mm -hmm. kind of changed the whole lenses that I looked through to look at reading books. And so when I started realizing I was at honest conversation with myself, I grabbed the whiteboard and I went through and categorized my life in like six areas. And it was like, you know, residual income, this category, wealth, this category, time spent with family in this category you know, efficiency throughout my daily activities or, you know, my mortgage business, different, six different categories. And I realized, okay, so I've got some, I've got a lot of gaps in my life where I want to go. So I started reading books that help fill those gaps into play. Then I had this idea where, so I'm ADHD, I'm dyslexic and I have dysgraphia. So when I read a book, I'm listening to the audio book while I'm looking at the book and following my finger. If not, I don't have the luxury of being able to digest it. So when I review that, and sometimes I still struggle with digesting it, I learned back in like 2016, 2017, I started reaching out to the authors. And it's it was pretty cool because a lot of people you just mentioned were people that I've met from reading their book, had reached out to them, introduced myself to them, and said, hey, I've got some learning disabilities, and I'm trying to digest from your book. You said A, B, and C. Can you elaborate more on that? 
So a lot of my great friends and a lot of my great mentors over the last seven, 10 years of my life are New York Times bestselling authors that cared enough to invest in me, one of their readers of their books. So reading is a huge part of my life. Mm. You just reminded me an author out there, a guy named Joey Coleman. I remember he was speaking at an event I was at and he was just saying, hey, you know, as a as a speaker and somebody obviously that's poured their life into sharing ideas and concepts with the audience, he said, it surprises me how few people come up to the stage after you're yeah. done. And he's like, yeah. as, as a speaker, like that's the biggest honor that I said something that hit home and somebody wants me to expand on that. And I would like to guess that many of those authors, I'm sure not all of them, but many of them, that they've seen that as an honor of, hey, I put something down to paper that hit Wally and he wants to dive deeper. Have you found they've been more open than you would have expected when you reach out? A thousand percent. You know, there's, you know, Jeff Hoffman is, he's a billionaire, wrote the book Scale. He was one of the people okay. I reached out and he, he invited me to do a one hour Zoom with him and, and he walked me through his book Scale and I really hit it off with him. I said, you know, Jeff, you know, I'd love to make a donation to your foundation. If I make a donation to your foundation, can I come follow you for a day? I mean, this this is the billionaire dude, super successful. I mean, billpriceline.com. And he had, he had me come up to his place in Cleveland. And I spent the whole entire day just following him around and going from meeting to meeting to meeting and meeting. Just observing. And then we had dinner that night and I got back in a plane and came back to Dallas. So it's mm -hmm. pretty neat how some of the most successful people in the world that you think are like just totally, they'd be staying offish or they're too good to speak to you. They're some of the most welcoming, open-hearted people. Mm -hmm. What was one of your biggest learnings from your day with Jeff? Stop trying to save people. He his big, my, one of the biggest takeaway I had with him was everybody that he had in his executive team was better than him at his lane. Where a mistake I've made in leadership and in also in business is I see someone that I fall in love with and I bring them into my world and I, I could see that they've got some challenges, but I had this like savior complex, like I'm going to save you. And you, know, you can be so much more successful if you had my models, my systems. And you realize with him, the great advice he gave me, he goes, only hire people today that you know will have a successful year next year without you. And he's mm. a lot of his career, he's he's really been able to tack on the people that are, that are on this hockey stick, but he tacks on them in the middle of like where the hockey sticks flat. Then as they're taken off, they're helping grow his world and also their world from there. I love that. Yeah, it's the difference Heard between that. learning how like it's emerging talent versus proven talent. Emerging talent is not yet, it might be proven in a different industry, but if they enter the mortgage space or financial services space, they're not proven in that space, but they're a winner. And um, another piece of advice he gave was, uh, it was like, yeah, like eight executives and seven of the eight executives. So what is that, 85% or so had some sort of collegiate sports leadership career in college, some sort of sport. If it was softball, if it was baseball, if it was basketball, they were some sort of athlete. And it's just the difference of finding a teammate that understands the team team dynamic. You've got to work your tail off. You got to put in the work and that they have a high level of competitiveness. It works well, well in business. I've seen that theme many times as well. I'm curious, were you a former athlete by chance? Uh, no, no. I mean, I played high school soccer, but I mean, so did a bunch of yeah. people. No, no, no high school athlete. Yourself? Uh, played college football, but I've in the world I grew up in, in finance, that was a, I'm, it wasn't, you know, there's always exceptions to every rule. So I, I, I don't think you say, oh, I've, we've got to have former athletes, but that there was definitely a trend where some of the most successful were former athletes. Uh, yeah, for sure. for sure. You know, well, Wally, you have a really interesting story. Uh, you were not born in the U.S. You were born in Egypt and came over to the U.S. at a young age. I would love to hear kind of that journey, how that impacted you, and then maybe some of the key milestones along the way that got you where you are at this point, at least. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, so I grew up in Alexandria, Egypt, families from Cairo. My father worked for Mobile Oil. So when they relocated us to the States, we relocated to Dallas, who's part of the big oil boom. And I uh, just grew up here in Dallas, Fort Worth. You know, I, um, I knew I had a love for business and a love for money earlier, very early in my teenage years. This is how my senior year in high school went. And I'd wake up at 5 a.m. and go deliver newspapers, the Dallas Morning News. I'd get to school by 7, 7.15 to get to soccer practice. I'd start and go to school, get out at 12 o'clock. And I was a Slotchkey's assistant manager until 9 p.m. 
So I was a senior wow. in high school, you know, having working a full 40 hour week, but you know, I was a senior in high school making over four grand a month, which it was, it got to the point where it's like, you know, I, I can do this. Well, I try to go to college and I think that earlier I kind of broke down. So I'm ADD, HD, I'm dyslexic and I'm dysgraphia. So I've challenged digesting, you know, educational schoolwork, if that makes any sense. And then, so the challenge mm -hmm. was I get to college, I try to, I try to enroll in the college and my GPA was so super low that it just didn't make sense and to redo all my remedial classes. Long story short, I started selling cars when I was 18 years old. I sold cars for like six months. And there's a this guy comes a lot and he's buying his Mazda Miata, pulls up with his shirt off. He's got his golf clubs in his, um, in his uh, passenger seat and he's got his flip-flops. I'm like, what do you do? And he goes, man, I'm a loan officer. I make, you know, $100,000 a year and, and um, you know, I work maybe two, three days a week. I'm like, dude, can I like come be your assistant? He wouldn't hire me, but it kind of he kind of planted a seed of like, if this Yahoo can make six figures, like here I am working bell to bell in car sales, like I need I need out of here. So I sold cars for a whopping six months, and I went and found a loan officer that hired me as a loan officer assistant. So I, I just I mean I started mortgage when I was nineteen years old, completely wet behind the ears. I had to have facial hair to make me look older. I'd wear like eyeglasses that were complete see through. They're fake eyeglasses, but it made me look like I was like a little more sophisticated. But uh, it just taught myself in the mortgage business and, and worked my way up from there. But but I can go a little more detail if you like. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'm already seeing a theme, Wally. And that is this kind of constant pursuit of something more. Yeah. Did Was that your parents? Was that just your hard wiring? Where did that come from? Because that, that's got you're pretty quick on your feet right there to just call this dude out. You're like, oh, I think this is a better move if I go here versus selling cars, you know, for another year. No, it's it definitely wasn't necessarily my parents. Unfortunately, they were not really too super successful in the business space. I think growing up from a third world country, you come from a poorer background and you grow and you move mm -hmm. here to the States. And my dad moved to the States when we had the oil boom. But then what happened after that? You know, there's oil crash and there's a lot of layoffs and we struggled financially growing up. So it was one of these things that like you you always have like the new kids at school that have Reeboks or Nikes, they're pumping it up and you've got the ones that pay less shoes. And I hated feeling less than. And I never walk around even today mm -hmm. thinking I'm better than anyone, but I at least feel I'll walk around today feeling I'm equal to them. There's nothing that I'm lacking. So as I learned that made me really successful in business because so many people go 95% of the way in business, quit and only settle for 5% of the results in their life. And a mentor of mine taught me that. And it was one of these things that it really ingrained in me. When I'm ready to quit, I'm ready to throw in the towel. Man, just be committed for one more day. Just be committed for one more day. And before you know it, you just outlast your fears, you outlast your doubts, and you just push through that ceiling of achievement to wherever your goal is. Mm. Good advice. And fun fact, Payless Shoe Source was my first corporate job. And <laughs> you know how I knew that? which is you know, now infamously bankrupt. Uh, but uh, there were two reasons I knew that. I, I was there from, let me think, how old was I? 24, 25, 26, I think. So I was there straight out of college. And there were two, looking back, reasons they're no longer in business. Number one, no one at Payless Shoe Source Corporate wore Payless shoes. Everybody was wearing other shoes besides the ones they made. And number two, they had, I think they called it Store 100 or... It was their online store. So I was there 2005, six in the beginning of seven. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to really focus on that one. We're going to stay more on the, the brick and mortar. So they took a wrong turn on that one, which probably tells you a business lesson or two. But let's go back to you. So obviously, you not only did you climb the ranks on the mortgage side, but at some point you went from being kind of the assistant guy to the guy leading it. So now you're running your own brokerage company. So get, maybe fill in a few of those gaps. I'm sure there's a, some lessons along yeah. the way. So just like I'm sure you guys know Robert Kiyosaki is, I got a chance to meet him a couple of mm -hmm. times and he mentored me for about three different sessions, but he's got his cash flow quadrant. You go from employee to self-employed, then you go through his quadrant. So I focused on my 20s. So uh, I broke six figures my first year in mortgage. But in my 20s, I've focused, which is in my book, being the star quarterback. I'm sorry, in my 20s was rookie of the year. Rookie of the year in my 20s and my 30s became the star quarterback. Then in my 40s became the head coach. And in my 50s, I'm 45 now, 
in my 50s, I'll figure out how to be the owner. So if you look at it, like in my 20s, my goal was to be, I knew I was supposed to make mistakes. I knew I was supposed to be new. I knew there was a lot for me to learn. So if I'm rookie of the year in my 20s, a lot of it's soaking in knowledge, trying different things and figuring out what's going to work for me. Once I realized in my 30s, I needed to be the star quarterback. Well, that's when like leadership came into play. And I realized in my 30s, I need to build a team around me to be able to help me grow to scale because being a one-man shop or one-person shop, you, you just can't really, you run out of hours in a day. And then now, you know, going from the, again, the rookie of the year to the star quarterback, now being the head coach where I'm leading leaders instead of leading followers because the, on, as your rookie of the year, you know, you've got followers and you've got also, say, star quarterback, you've got the followers. But when you're the head coach, you're leading other leaders. So that's where I am in my space today, where I lead other leaders in the mortgage space. I coach other leaders in the mortgage space. And, but you had, I had to go through that. I mean, I've done this 25 years now. I've had to go through that progression to really understand what that next level is like. Let's dive in there because we sure. were talking before we hit record here. And there's a lot of similarities between guys I've seen really scale large businesses on the mortgage side versus financial advisors that have done the same. And we call it a triad. We call the model going from the advisor in charge, which to your point, the one man show, the rookie of the year, that the constraint is you. You only have so many hours in the day or week to that next step, which is a business owner or CEO that's now starting to scale a team to where they can go on vacation and their revenue doesn't go on vacation, for example. Yeah. So what was the hardest thing where you're like a go-getter? Obviously, you can tell that from your story. To now going to, do you define the, the star quarterback as leading other mortgage brokers in your model? Would that be kind of the, the business owner level? Yeah. You know, as, as, a, as, as a life coach, I just want to make sure we align the, the verbiage up the same way. Yeah. So when you're leading other leaders, you're the head coach. When you're the star quarterback, yeah. you're leading other followers, right? Got it. And, you know, when you're the star quarterback, if it's to say, obviously, your your wide receiver or your lineman, you know, they don't do anything until you say hi. You know, they're following your yep. playbook, right? When you're the head coach, the star quarterback has their own decisions, plans, and like you're now you're coaching. Say if you're Bill Belichick, you're coaching the head coordinator or like the defensive coordinator. And now you you realize you can only do so much. You can't throw the ball to yourself anymore because you're not you're not in the field, right? You're there on the sidelines mm -hmm. with your clipboard. So you got to have the models and systems in place that the players follow. And you've got to have the technology around it in my space and mortgage space to keep them accountable along the way so they don't skip steps. Because then you never get the whole McDonald's mindset of like everything, the, the assembly line of the process. So I see people try to scale, they end up not having a model that a model and standards around it. And they don't use technology to be able to keep the humans accountable for the model and standards that they end up diluting their brand. They dilute their brand. The business goes down, not up. Yeah. Let's dive in on the sales side, because I think that's the side where most advisors, you know, obviously, if you if you can't sell, it's tough to scale as an advisor, very similar to, to hard to, to scale as a guy doing mortgages. So I see that being one of the biggest frustrations. I'm, I'm assuming it may be in your space as well, where this advisor, you know, kind of grinds it out. It's survival of the fittest. You know, they 10 years in, 15 years in, they're like, okay, time to train the next advisor in line or the next couple. And it's really frustrating because it's slower. It takes longer. They screw a few sales up along the way. What are systems or methods you've used in your space to accelerate that training curve? Yeah. So in my world, there, there's five steps to a mortgage loan. There's the lead app. You get a referral, you get them to apply. There's a high trust interview, going through their application, figuring out what they qualify for, goals, and that nature. Then there's the the um, the total cost analysis, figuring out their options, going through that. There is the lock call when the contract comes in. And then there's simply the one for the closing aspect of it. So when I was a solo person, say the rookie of the year, I did all five steps. And when I became the star quarterback, they started doing the first one and they had to graduate from that first one. And I did the other four. Then they started doing the first two and I did the other three. Then they started doing the, the first three and I did the other two. And it never, they never got the opportunity to take the next level until they tested out and proved that they can continuously do that and just keep up the same high level of quality same high level of conversion, 
Because when I tracked it of what my conversion rate was from lead to app, my conversion rate was from high trust interview and the milestones, I did not want to delegate an opportunity to a loan officer, they not convert and we make no money. So the right. goal is, hey, if I'm going to delegate to you, here's the minimum. If I'm at like a 90% conversion rate, your minimum standard, not suggestion, but standard is 75%. If you can't convert more than 75%, then I, I'm not going to give you any of my referrals. You can go get your own and you can convert whatever you want on your own. But if you want my referrals to my referral partners and from my database, there's a standard you've got to hit. So many people make their careers. I don't care if it's a financial advisor. I don't care if it's a loan officer. I don't care if it's a CPA, a tax strategist, whatsoever. They make their world so complicated and make themselves feel like they are so sophisticated or whatever. I try to dumb down mortgage just as simple as possible. And it was, it came from a Jay-Z quote that said, I dumbed it down my lyrics to double my dollars. And I made the model so simple, so detailed, but so simple that I'm able to now have technology that keeps them accountable on milestones and conversion rates. And our accountability for conversion rates get emailed out to the whole entire team with a dashboard that the whole team sees. Hey, Johnny's at a 91% occupancy, but here's, you know, Bob is at like an 81% occupancy. And it's like a competition gamifying with each other. So it's just natural accountability by, by the group. Because you yeah. don't want to be the low low guy or girl on the totem pole. No, absolutely not. And then there's awards for the people that, you know, if you've got the highest conversion rate, guess what? The next month, Wally's going to go help you land the next referral partner and help you grow your business. And now you got another referral partner referring your business. They want my time. They want me to go out and go land more bigger referral partners to re that they get more business from. Well, to get my time, you've got to be the top one, two, or three in the highest conversion rate of the, of the team. You're not going to get my time if you got the lowest conversion rate and I'm not going to go out there and help you go get more business just for you turn around and and just waste the deals. Yeah, so let's let's hit that too because there's nothing more frustrating than spending marketing dollars that generate qualified leads and then just those getting flushed down the toilet from people that aren't ready for them or aren't following a system to convert. So let's just say you've got now two or three that have gone through those five steps and they're all converting at about the same rate. At your point, once you had a team or that next level, did you now take your minimum up to where Wally only works on the big deals? Or how how did the scaling go from there once that kind of first step of next sales team was in place? Yeah, scaling really took off for me in 2019. And I was able to teach all my loan officers all five steps. And I kept the standard at 75%. I did not raise it. And as I kept the standard at 75% and they mastered all five steps, what was great about that is 97% of our business came from realtors, okay? That sounds great. And we're doing $100 million a year in loans. We're top 10 in the state of Texas and all these accolades and awards. But it was like a rat race every single month. And if the realtors, you've got to go do happy hours, dinners, wine and smooths just to go get referrals. The business had no worth, had no value because I had no reoccurring income coming in. So I realized only 3% of my business came from my database. Well, why? Well, after I closed the loan, I never reached out to them, right? Unless it was a refi boom and rates dropped, like, hey, buddy, remember me? And mm -hmm. so outside of that, you know, I never reached out to my database. So I created something called an annual mortgage review. And it, it was actually a mortgage efficiency checkup. So mortgage efficiency checkup is when I call the client and say, hey, I closed your mortgage three and a half years ago on 123 Apple Street. I know I haven't talked to you since then. I have failed staying in communication with you. But to make it up to you, what I've done is I've gone through your mortgage and I see some inefficiencies that can help you pay more principal, less interest for less number of years. And I just simply go through their mortgage statement, help them pay more principal, less interest, and for less number of years, I help them reshop around their home insurance to decrease their escrow account. I help them turn around and dispute their taxes to make sure that they've got homestead exemption. If they've got monthly mortgage insurance, I'll turn around and um, get, help them get that removed if they've got an equity in the house. So I'm giving them value. So the following year from 2019 to 2020, I did 150 million. So I went up 50 million, but what was super cool about that was 37% of my business came from database. From 3% to 37% came from database. Well, what I realized, there was a gap there. And the following year, how we got to $200 million in loans the following year, so in three years, $100 million, $150 million, $200 million. So I doubled in two years. 
And the way we got to 200 million is when I was on these mortgage efficiency checkups with these clients, the past clients, I realized they have gaps in their world. Well, doing TurboTax and I'm looking to help them go through a tax, I'm like, you need to get with a CPA. Or someone's got owns a business and they've got a CPA, but they don't have a tax strategist. Or, you know, I put them a half a million dollars in mortgage debt and they've got $300,000 equity in their house, but then they don't have a family will or they don't have a trust. I got to refer them to a family will attorney. Then from there, I turn around and then their taxes are through the roof because they haven't filed home sale exemption. I'm referring them to a tax dispute or company to drive down their taxes. Then also from there, it's a funny, I got, you know, when I did their loan, they had one kid. Now they've got three kids and then they don't have any life insurance, haven't increased their life insurance, but they've got three kids now and they've taken on a bigger mortgage. I'm referring them to a financial advisor so they can get update their life insurance and grow their wealth from there. So I found out through these gaps. Well, I started referring out referrals in 2020 to, to wealth partners. And the way that I got these financial advisors, CPAs, family will attorneys and insurance agents is I when I'd pick up the phone and call the client and do the mortgage efficiency checkups, I'd help them identify and self-discover that they had a gap in their wealth. You know, there was no one they were helping grow their wealth. There's no one protecting their wealth. And I would ask them, I'd say, hey, do you have a CPA? And they'd say, if they said yes, okay, awesome. One to 10, what would you rate your CPA? And they'd say, if they said seven or below, I'm like, hold on, timeout. I just put you a half million dollars in mortgage debt. Like if you don't have a tax strategist, that's like a 12 out of 10, I can structure the mortgage best way possible, but you're going to be paying too much taxes. You're not going to maximize write-offs. Are you open to me referring you to my tax strategist? Free consultation, just have a conversation with them. Boom, easy referral that I'm able to send out. Number one. Number two, when I ask them if they say, hey, one out of 10, rate your CPA, they turn around and they say, is a 12 out of 10. Absolutely best I've ever seen. I'm like, oh my God, I help seven, 800 families a year for mortgages. Can you put your CPA in a joint email, introduce us together, share both our numbers, and let, and I want to be refer my clients to your CPA as a uh, on your behalf. So I was doing that with financial advisors, so doing that with family will attorneys, doing that with insurance. It got to a point where it's like, now there's 76 different financial advisors that we refer business to, 14 different CPAs, nine family will attorneys, you know, four insurance companies, not just four insurance agents. And the database goes from 2019 with 2,000 people in my past client database to where I was starting to do mortgage efficiency checkups for my wealth partners. So it goes from 2019 with 2,000 people on past client to 2020, 11,000 people in my database. But now it's got over 28,000 people in my database now in 2024. So the way scaling came to me was replacing myself as the loan officer that worked with realtors, gave me back six to eight hours of my day, that allowed me to focus on building equity in my business, which was my database. I turned that database into a data bank that was able to pull referrals out of, refer that to CPAs, financial advisors, family will attorneys, insurance, and out of the $200 million a year that we close in loans, $81 million of the $200 million in loans come from CPAs, financial advisors, family will attorneys, and insurance. It's just a much better, more efficient way of doing business. And now I'm the head coach on the sidelines instead of the star quarterback that's on the field or the rookie of the year. Love it. I didn't want to ruin that flow, Wally. It was too good. So couple thoughts because there's a lot of synergies and similarities with financial advisors here who also many of them have a great database because they've marketed and worked with clients for yeah. 10, 20, 30 years. But from my experience, just like you back in 2019, most of them are not mining that gold. It's just sitting there. Yeah. So if we go back, when you freed up the time to where, okay, we've got kind of the sales team rolling here, back to the database, I'm assuming starting out, it sounded like you were the guy picking up the phone and really testing this new strategy out. Was that the case back then? It was 110% of the case because there was nothing built. So I had to go, yeah. it's, I do it as like, this is very simple nine-step process of scalability that anybody can follow. And it's in my book. I do it, we do it, they do it. I had to go do mm -hmm. it and learn the best practices and fail forward on it. The we do it is me writing out the scripts, the manuals, the processes, and my team starting to do those with me. The they do it is them doing it from A to Z, me watching them and doing it as live and coaching them live. 
then it becomes their responsibility. Now, now their lane, their opportunities, their responsibility. And, and they then you can let go. Well, I feel like so many people mm-hmm. just like they think they're delegating, but they're truly dumping. And if you don't, yes. if you don't delegate with a roadmap, the chances of you being successful is very slim. And the chances of you getting that job back is very high. It happens all the time. That's one of the biggest frustrations I've seen in our space. I love that. I do it, we do it, they do it. And we call that in our coaching, you let somebody ride shotgun with you and then you flip it and they drive and you're riding shotgun. But you are literally listening, like shadowing while they're making these calls. And then as soon as they hang up the phone, it's kind of after action review where you're critiquing right there on the spot. Yeah, we use Salesforce and we connect it to two softwares, one called Dial Source and the other one called Ring Central. And there's a feature in there for Ring Central that I can be listening to a phone call and, and I can give verbal coaching. And the only person that hears it is my guy and my side of the fence. Oh, you're like in their earpiece then, basically. Correct. Yeah. So it allows very it, cool. It, if they're going down a rabbit hole, if they're I'm like, get back on script, get back on the manual, get back on the steps. Or if they gloss over something, hold on, go back, unravel A, B, and C, and then you'll find gold because they'll take you in this direction. Okay, so let's geek out on cold calling a bit. Although these are probably not cold calls. Although depending on how long you've talked to them, maybe it's more of a colder call. So I grew up in the space. Day one, learn what an annuity is. Day two, make 100 cold calls. That was how I cut my teeth. Are there certain frameworks that you prefer when it goes to scripting and just simplifying what can often get complicated for new sales guys when it comes to cold calling your sales scripts? I mean, you're probably going to hang up on me. It's pretty darn simple, really. It's get them to like you. My goal is to get you to laugh within the first 30 seconds. If I can get you to laugh within the first 30 seconds, I got you. So get, get them to like you, add value, and ask for the business. So for me to be add value, I've got to be a great listener. One of my morning affirmations every morning is that, I've said this 11 years, last 11 years every morning to myself, is my questions are piercing, my answers are motivating, my presence is commanding, my success is untouchable. For my questions to be piercing... I have to be a great listener. I have to be curious. I have to want to learn more. My answers will never be motivating if I talk more than I listen and I don't ask them to go to the emotional places in the conversation. So the better listener I learned to become, the more successful I became on those calls. So I love the try to get them to laugh within the first 30 seconds. What's your go-to? Do you have one that's proven over and over that always just gets some sort of reaction? Got a few. Um, I'd probably say... Are you living the dream? And and the, the, there's usually a small giggle if they don't giggle. And, and I say, yeah, it's been, it's been a Monday on a Thursday. I'm, I'm not living my dream. I'm living somebody else's dream. And usually then I've seen them laughing there. And I'll, I'll just say quirky things like, so tell me, you having a good day? You having a great day? And like, what's somebody to say back? F you. Like, it's not going to be like, yeah. you know, no one's going to say something negatively back to that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Just And it's interesting. It's an interesting study in human psychology when you cold call. But I have found the energy you bring to a call is typically reciprocated. You know, yeah. like if you're having a good time, high energy, smiling, having fun, most people, even if they're naturally grumpy, will kind of get on board with that. So I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, they'll get um, on board with that for probably the first maybe 30, 60 seconds, but you got to get to value pretty darn quickly. You know, I think when sometimes yeah, people yeah. like you, you get them to laugh in the beginning, but then you do more small talk. I'm like, you got to cut the small talk. Like you're, you're taking up their time. If they don't see value in you and continue the conversation after like 60 seconds or 90 seconds in, like the call will be done in three minutes and you'll never get what you want. So get to the value. Yeah. Okay. So I want to rewind because our time is limited. So let's, let's get to the point here too, right? So back to the scaling. So you unlock this new referral source, which is through phone calls, right? And and basically mining that database, which then unlocks this whole new referral stream coming from different kind of financial uh, worlds that your clients are in. So estate planning, tax planning, financial planning. We were talking before we went live financial advisors, this has been, it's like the holy grail that they've gone after for their entire careers. It's like, oh, if I could just find this CPA that just sends me referrals consistently, if I could just find this estate planning attorney. Now enter mortgage guy, because this is the first time I've I've heard this strategy from your space. How do you make this as a win-win on both sides? Because most financial advisors listening in, they're sending a lot of referrals to CPAs and estate planning attorneys, but it's not coming back the other way. So how would you crack that code, Wally? 
Yeah. So I refer out about a hundred or my team refers out about 120 referrals, a minimum on a monthly basis. We usually average closer to about 140. So if I'm referring out 120 referrals on a monthly basis, and the mindset is I get a referral from a realtor, I turn around and take that same referral, refer it to CPA, financial advisor, family will attorney and insurance. So I've referred out four different partners. My goal is to get a minimum back of two referrals back. If I get two referrals back that I can turn around and pre-approve, I can refer one to my current realtor that originally referred me to that client. Thank you for your loyalty. And I can take the other one and go find a new big-time realtor that I can refer that pre-approved client to that I want to prospect. I'm changing the whole fathom mm. between from being an addition to a multiplication from like from the jump. So as I've done that, and I refer out over 120 referrals, that means I'm getting back 60 referrals. So one thing that I've, I keep track is I've referred out over $2 million in commissions a year the last three years in a row, $2 million in commissions a year. One of the first questions I usually get asked when, I, when I'm saying that from stage is that, well, how'd you track that? So let's just say you start off with a financial advisor. I sit down with you and say it's October. I'm like, hey, it's October, 2023. What I want to understand is tell me about your goals for 2024. You tell me X, Y, and Z. Okay, cool. So for you to reach that, and if you're able to accomplish that ballpark, what is it on a yearly revenue for your business or yearly income you'd make? You'd say X. Okay. So it sounds like your profitability per client is, I don't know, $5,000 for simple math. So with that being said, what I want to do is I want to be a big part of your success. Tell me about the number one referral source that you have. How many closed transactions or relationships you get from that number one referral source? I get two or three a month. Okay, so if I'm able to refer you five clients a month, that number one right now is making you say $10,000, $15,000 a month in revenue. If I refer you five at $5,000, I mean, it's, I'm able to refer you then $25,000 in revenue on a monthly basis. And if your goal is a million dollars in revenue, I just referred you about 25% of what your goal is. Does that make me your number one biggest partner that you can have in 2024? Answers a lot of times, if not always, yes. All right. So with that being said, what I want to do is I want to set up a call with you for 15 minutes every Friday. Every client that I refer you throughout the week, the responsibility on Friday is for you to tell me, did you get a hold of John Smith? Did John Smith move forward with you? What did you talk to John Smith about that I can reach back out to John Smith and help you reinforce him moving forward with you? And then on a monthly basis, I want to be able to track did I get you those five referrals that you're able to close or did I only get you four and next month I got to get you six? Or did I get you seven that month and I've got two more extra in the bank? 10 out of 10 times, the first question they ask right, right back is, well, tell me about your goals, Wally. Tell me about your, your goals. What do you want to accomplish? What's your average question? They're asking, we're regurgitating the same questions back. And then from there, mm -hmm. every wealth advisor, every partner I have, I always gift them the book, uh, Give and Take by Adam Grant talks about there's three different types of people in the world, the givers, the takers, and the people that give and take evenly. So most people don't know that they, the happiest person and the most successful person are the givers, I'm sorry, the people that give and take evenly, not the givers and not the takers. So I break that down for them and I tell them, okay, here's my business plan. Here's the type of avatar client that I'm looking for. Here's how I can add value to them. And when we, on that Friday call, Whoever you refer me with, uh, my responsibility will be able to report back to you that did I convert that client? How did that go? Did I win with that client? How to add value, such from there. And when we meet on a monthly basis, then we're going through also my goals from there. So what you realize is you flush out people pretty darn quickly up front. If a wealth advisor is saying, yeah, duh, no, that's just too much, then they were never going to be a successful partner from day one. If they're like, yeah, let's do it. I want you to be number one. I want to be your number one. Then like, you know, like you guys are equally yoked and you'll be great partnership together. And that's who I built my wealth partners with. I'm not built the business with wealth advisors that are takers versus mm. only wealth advisors are given. It's only give and take evenly. That makes a lot of sense. So let's dive in. And I don't, I want to make sure I'm not making any assumptions. So all of this is managed inside of Salesforce as far yep. as where the referral comes from and where you're redeploying it back out. Yep. Yes. And then one of the things of how it sounds like you've overcome the whole don't bite the hand that feeds you, such as if I give 
a CPA referral. This happens all the time in finance, by the way. And then I'm like, wait, a month later, CPA, nothing. It's because the CPA is now getting referrals from about six different financial advisors and doesn't want to make any of them mad. So therefore, he gives no referrals to anybody. So you're kind of creating an upfront contract of expectation, the give and take, framing it with Adam Grant's book. But the other hack, how you've gotten around that, is you have referrals coming from multiple sources, estate planning attorneys, CPAs, financial advisors. So now you can take financial advisor referrals, redeploy to CPAs, redeploy to estate planning, and you're now not biting the hand that feeds you. So that's the other way you've gotten around that. Is that accurate? And and 100%. And on a yearly basis, that's what you just described chapter 15 and chapter 16 of my book. So, and also on a, on a monthly basis, what I'll do, what I'm sorry, on a quarterly basis, we'll do a uh, client appreciation event. So the CPA will gather their clients and do a, I don't know, pictures with Santa, whatever. And then the, the financial mm-hmm. advisor will do, they'll do a joint one. Or the family will attorney will do one with the insurance agent or whatever. And we're, we're the ones helping structure those. So now you're getting the face-to-face time now you're getting the referrals back and forth. But we use two other technologies that really help us stay engaged. And the first one is called HomeBot, H-O-M-E, second word, B-O-T. And it's like, imagine like your your mortgage has a report card and it's a digest. If anybody wants to, to know more about it, reach out to me and I'll, I'll walk you through that. But it, I own 0% of it. I wish I owned it. It's a phenomenal company and product. But it's a great tool to get with a financial advisor or a CPA for them, for their database to adopt it. And in there, there's also, there. it's your contact information, the wealth advisor's contact information. So we're digitally on a monthly basis reaching out to them. Now, what I do step further from there is I record a, a five to 10 minute video with each wealth advisor on a monthly basis. It's me and the wealth advisor, them going through of like, hey, what's going on with the new tax strategies or what's going on in the marketplace or what's going on in the stock market? Are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? Whatever it is. So it's me and the CPA, and we send those out through a technology called BombBomb. It's a digital uh, video email software, and it goes out to their database of me and the CPA. So then my editor cuts those up in reels. And then now we target them on Facebook and also LinkedIn and also Instagram targeting me in the CPA's database. So now they're seeing me all over social. Now they're seeing it via email with the uh, Wealth Advisor database. They're seeing me at the client appreciation events. They're seeing me through the technology for a HomeBot. It's engaged the relationships and it's built this ecosystem where we feed each other. But then that's how I have a database of 28,000 households that know me or know of me at least, or would welcome a call from me that I could pick up the phone and call a mortgage, do a mortgage efficiency checkup instead of just, you think of like you got 28,000 cold leads, which we don't, we do not. So, I mean, the simple, this goes back to the Zig Ziglar quote that everybody knows, help enough other people get what they want and you'll get what you want in life. So where I've seen a lot of these referral strategies or frameworks or whatever go wrong is it's always self-centered. What's in it for me? You're really flipping the script and saying, what's in it for them? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, number one, you're helping facilitate at a minimum, some form of quarterly client event where they're kind of invited with their clients. Now, is your whole team the one organizing and, and doing all of this? And then you're just inviting a bunch of strategic partners in, or are they the ones creating the actual events? Uh, it depends. I'd probably say 60% of my team's handling quarterbacking the whole thing, 40% they're quarterbacking it and we're we're sent shotgun on it. We're invited to every single one. It just, there's only so many hours in the day and and they're usually during the evening. So I, I can't, I don't want to force my, my team to always sacrifice their family time. Yeah. But the cool thing is these events are happening. Essentially, you have an invite, most of which you're going to, or at least creating a presence there. You've also are plugging them into BombBomb's very familiar in finance. A lot of financial advisors used it. HomeBot was the other one, H-O-M-E-B-O-T. Yep. And help me understand what that does. So is that pulling mortgage information on the yeah, so it, it, So you, you put in four things, a person's name, email address, phone number, and home address. And that's all you need, right? The only resource you can get access to is through a mortgage lender. And if anybody is watching, wants help signing up, reach out to me and, and I can I can help sign, sign them up. So it's imagine like, so it pulls the deed, it pulls the amortization schedule from the county to see like, hey, what's the interest rate? What's the note? What's the loan balance? And also pulls what's the length of term. 
It creates an amortization schedule from that. Then it also identifies what the loan balance is. Then it also identifies from there, it pulls the data from the MLS of what the value of the house is. So now it gives your home a net worth. Say it's a $700,000 home and you've got a $500,000 balance. Now you've got $200,000 in equity in your home. If you wanted to do a debt consolidation loan, it gives you options right at your fingertips. These are widgets are phenomenal. Tells you, gives you options. Hey, if you want to do a debt consolidation loan, you have $50,000 with a credit card debt. You want to do a debt consolidation loan. This is how much more cash flow you can save. If you ever want to make your home into a rental property per the comparables in the area, this is how much you rent out your house fee. Or it pulls data from wow. Air, Air DNA and from Air DNA, and it tells you, hey, if you make your home into a vacation rental, this is the average nightly rate. This is the average monthly occupancy, and it, and it calculates that for you. Uh, this other widgets, hey, real quick, put... Wally, real quick there. So Air DNA, which is what pulls from Airbnb's rental information. I'm just not familiar it. with Air DNA. So yeah, you okay. got it. That's it. So imagine like their housing, where all the data is. Then also it's got widgets wow. to where like you can put in, hey, I want to add fifty dollars extra towards my principal. What will that do? Okay, you've got 27 years left on your mortgage. It brings you down to 25 years. This is how much more principal and equity you'll be able to build. This is how much interest you'll be able to save. I want to look at options of, hey, I don't want to refinance, but I've got 19 years left in the mortgage. I want to pay it off in 15 years. How much do I have to pay on a monthly basis to pay it off in 15 years? Helps calculate that. So if they ask for help, they can click a button and you know, a team will pick up a phone and call. But it allows everything house to where everything's at someone's fingertips that they can they can have the educational fortitude to be able to maneuver versus mm -hmm. just covering your eyeballs and throwing something and go see if it sticks against the wall. Yeah. Wow. Never heard of that software. Sounds pretty powerful. Do you yeah. have any idea in today's day and world? It's like, can I connect Salesforce to this and create some APIs where all the information feeds? Does does Homebot have some pretty standard APIs that could feed into like, um, some financial yeah. planning softwares or things like that. Yeah, so I've got a program encoder on staff that's Zapier certified. And mm -hmm. a lot of our technologies from HomeBot to Mortgage Coach to Sales Boomerang to BombBomb to Agent Legend to Salesforce, all of them are connected. If they don't have an open API, we do Zapier integration, get them all connected and talk through there. Awesome. Well, hey, I see why you're generating so many referrals, my man. <laughs> but again, it's because that's it's, pretty phenomenal. It's a software that, again, you can only get access to it if you're a lender. So if anybody wants help signing up, just share my contact information. I'd love to help you sign up. Very cool. Well, let's go. I'm looking at the time tick away. One of the things that I wanted to get into that I thought was pretty interesting when I was just reading your background. And by the way, I know we've mentioned your book a couple of times. So 24-7 mindset, build a business that pays you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, while only working 24 hours a week and seven months a year. So first off, we're going to give a bunch of those away until they're gone. So those that are listening in and are like, hey, what's this book that Wally keeps bringing up? It'll be in the, the intro of the show notes. So feel free to dive in and we'll, we'll send out some free copies till they're, till they're gone. But speaking of books, you have gone on this personal growth journey uh, for quite a few years now of reading 50 books a year and implementing no less than 50 ideas per year that I'm guessing many of which are generated from those books. So how did that come to be? Did you meet a, a librarian back in the day that gave you this idea? Like, give us the background on this and how it's played out. No, it, it's not a cool story, but it's a very impactful story. I'm sure you've seen him on YouTube or social. Have you heard of uh, Eric Thomas, hip hop preacher, motivational mm -hmm. speaker? He uh, he comes to Dallas back in like 2012, 2013. And uh, I get, you know, front row seats for the guy. I just absolutely just love the guy to death. Huge motivation. And uh, back then, I've read 16 books that year. He says, all right, who uh, who here loves to read? And he goes, if you raise your hand, if you read more than five books this last year. So like a cocky person that I'm not very proud of, but it's honest. I don't raise my hand. I raise both hands and I'm in the front row. So he goes, all right, there's a few people that raise your hand. Raise your hand if you read more than 10 books. Then I guess you raise your hand if you read more than 15 books. And that year, I'd read 16. I was number one in the room that read the most amount of books. So he hands me the mic and he pulls me up on stage and he says, all right, what's your name? Tell us who you are. Did it? Okay, great. You read your 16 books. That's awesome. Tell us the top 16 things that you implemented from reading those 16 books. Uh, 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 uh. Beyond embarrassed, 
but it really hit home and it resonated. There's no point in reading a book if you don't implement it. So I created a model for myself that when I'm reading a book, I write down the top 10 things I want to learn and implement from the book. And then I write that top 10 ahas that I learned from the book. So the way I take my notes when I'm reading a book is it's asterisks for an aha, some new idea that I absolutely love or it's some cool. It's an open box, like a square, if it's a task that I want to be able to implement. So then from there, so I've got my ahas and I've, I've got my stuff I want to implement. So from there, I take- And, and that, Wally, you're just doing this in the margin, like of an actual physical book yeah, as you go? Yeah. Yeah, because okay. so like the I'm box reading. is almost like a check mark box, like this, so you can go back through, sort of deal. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So I'm making making that box. I'm able to able to check it, but then I then I sit down with my assistant and we take out three highlighters: a red, a yellow, and a green. The green is what I want to implement in the next thirty days. The yellow is what I want to implement in the next sixty days. The red is what I want to implement in the next ninety days. So it helps me understand like you can't, you, Rome was never built in a day, but one of my affirmations oh. every morning is Rome is not built in a day, Wally. However, Rome was built day after day after day after day after day, keep building. And that helps me not quit when things get tough. So when I created that 30, 60, 90 day breakdown, I didn't feel like I had to read a book and implement everything from it from day one, get overwhelmed and quit. I gave myself a runway to be able to, to implement and then from there, my assistant added on my calendar what that week I'm supposed to be implementing to stay on track of the red, yellow, and green. And I'm able to track it that way from there. So to me, it, it just became, it became a system. And once I learned how to apply systems to reading books, books became easy because you become so much more successful when you implement what you read. Books become hard when you read a book, super excited, then you quit and you fail and you feel inferior to what the author wrote that you never succeeded to. So from that journey, so you said 2012-ish, 13-ish? Yes. Well, not 13. Started, 2013 was the first time I read a book a month. I'm sorry, a book a week. Okay. So, which by the way, 16, you're not like a slouch at that point, right? But you kind of get called out. Like I read a bunch of books, but I really didn't like take the ideas and put them into action. So that gave you the nudge. And then what took it to 50? It's like, hey, I'm just going to do a book a week. Or you started getting the momentum because you were like implementing things. It was working. Like, how did you go from 16 to 50? What was the motivation there? 2012 is when I met Hal Elrod. And I really understood. And he spent some time with me really investing in me for the sake of mir the miracle morning and the investment, what to do, the affirmations mm -hmm. in the morning, the mindset, right? 2013 is when I was able to hire a trainer and at the gym. So my design of my morning my miracle morning is I wake up at 4 a.m. from 4 to 4.45 every morning, uh, reading a book in an Epsom salt bath before I head off to the gym. So from 4.45 to 5 o'clock, I'm driving to the gym. I'm saying my affirmations in the car. From 5 to 6 o'clock, I'm at the gym with a trainer. From 6 to 6.30, I go to cryo, do a hyper chair, and then come back and get to the house by 6.30. From 6.30 to about 6.45, I'm either putting, chipping. I've got a putting green in the backyard, and I've got a hitting bay upstairs at my house. So I'm, I'm practicing golf. And then I'm usually in the office every day by like, say, 7.30, 7.45. So in that two, three, or that three-hour window, I've fed my mind, I've fed my body, I've fed my spirit, and then, then I've worked out. It got me in the right mindset. Then I go start my work day. So once I started doing that, it became really easy to read a book a week because I've got a, almost five hours, you know, sitting there on a weekly basis reading a book. Cool. Hal is a, uh, number one, Hal's been on the show a few times. Definitely a friend, met him through Front Row Dads, which we talked about earlier. But I'll tell you what I love about that. There's a lot of people that have read Miracle Morning. It's not a thick book. It's pretty skinny. But most don't take it to that extreme. What nudged you to like, I'm doing this because one of the things I took from Miracle Morning when I read it is the the term, I'm not a morning person. It's like, no, you're just not a, I didn't get to bed early enough person so I could be a morning person. Was that always you or that completely shifted your mindset? And you're like, nope, I'm committing to being disciplined at night so I can be disciplined in the morning. Like, How did you transition into that Miracle Morning and just following it religiously? It probably started a little bit sooner than that. Like we talked earlier, so I've got two boys. Braden's 18. We call him Braden the Brave. And Alexander is 16. He's junior in high school. Call him Alexander the Great. And Alex, I remember, took a uh, martial arts class and he got up to like a green belt. 
And one of the things I learned from his sensei was the difference between discipline and self-discipline. Discipline is doing what you should be doing when people are around. Self-discipline is doing what you should be doing when there's no one around. And I'm sitting there with raising these two boys and I'm teaching them what that is. I realize, especially when they became teenagers, they stopped doing what I say to do. And they started only doing what I do. So if dad sleeps in and dad easily wakes up and doesn't read or doesn't empower himself or doesn't stretch himself or doesn't set goals, they're going to do exactly the same. I don't know how old your kids are, but mine are like 17 or 17, 18 now. And it's just, they're grown men, not grown men, but they're young men, but they, they got their yeah. own mind, got their own independence. And I realized at a young age that I really had to set the tone. I really had to set the example. So every morning I, I shoot them a text. Hey, this is what I learned this morning this book I'm re- reading. Mm-hmm. And I started bribing them on, Hey, you want that new skateboard or you want that new Xbox? Well, dad will pay you a dollar a page for every book that you read. So what's the average book, you know, 250 pages, there's 250 bucks. The only homework that you have is give me the top 10 ahas that you write down that you wrote in the book. Number one, number two, give me the top one thing that you're going to implement. And number three, give me the top one thing that you're going to teach someone else from what you read in the book. <laughs> I'd record a video of them going off the 10 ahas, the number one thing they're going to implement, number one they're going to teach. And then I would send a copy to the author to also, hey, I read your book. This is what I sent. I had my kids read it. And it helped help me get in a relationship with some of these authors, or I'd end up posting on social and tagging the author. That's cool. One of our uh, triad members, Wayne Wagner, also pays his kids to read books. And that was one of the things Sarah and I, my wife, talked about this year. Actually, our oldest is 13. But yeah, I, I love that concept because we were all kids once. If my dad would have come to me when I was 13 years old and said, I want you to read this stack of books, I'd been like, okay, dad, you know, here's another one of those things. But creating an incentive, yeah. like I don't call that bribery. That's an investment in your in your children. Yeah. And I, I think that's so smart. I love that idea. Was there resist? How old were they when you rolled this idea out to them? 11, 12. And was it immediately, heck yeah, I'm going to go make some money? Was there resistance? Like, what did that look like? I bought my first rental property in 2013, March of 2013. And then, you know, I ended up buying nine that first year, ended up buying 11 the following year. I got to 45 single family in 2017, and I sold a 1031 exchange them to apartment complexes. So now I own 487 doors, uh, which is 11 apartment complexes. So when the boys were watching me grow this wealth and grow this, they wanted to invest with me. Well, I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to let you tap into your trust fund, but I'll give you, hey, read a book a week, invest. And then you get residual income. So each one of the boys Mm -hmm. by the age of like 13, 14 had enough money to invest with me. And they both get, uh, one gets $187 a month residual income from the real estate portfolio. The other one gets like $640 a month. They've each have, uh, and I've got a rule with your residual income. You can blow 20% of it, 80% of it goes to savings. So each one will have right now 11,000 in one savings account. The other one's got like 16,000 in savings account. And, you know, they turn 21, the money's yours. So I helped them understand the roadmap to increase their wealth IQ, get paid to increase your wealth IQ, implement what you learn in investments, and then the money management of you can blow 20% on whatever the heck you want to blow 20% on, but the other 80% goes into your savings account. And now they're watching their their wealth increase. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Being a podcast that's do business, do life. We talk a lot about not just how to crush it in business, but you know, all of us. I think if we're uh, if we're true to ourselves, that's the best investment we can make. Is yeah. is the humans we're raising in our home and, and how they're going to show up long after we're gone. So, love that yeah. idea, Wally. Well, I'll be borrowing a number of those ideas. I can promise you that. Before we get off the books, you've read a lot. What are the top two or three? That's probably tough, I know. But what what are the ones that really stand out? Like this one impacted me, changed me. And I applied that idea to either business or life. Just love love a couple of those if you don't mind sharing. Uh, Number one period is called The One Thing by Gary Keller. And it Mm -hmm. teaches you how to have a focusing question. Uh, Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. And the focusing question is, what is the one thing such by doing it makes everything else easy? or unnecessary. 
what is the one thing such by doing it makes everything else easy or unnecessary? So every action that I take, every discipline that I have, everything that adds to my calendar, it runs through that filter. If it helps me prioritize everything, anything, and it also helps me have the self-discipline to say no to the things that I want and say yes to the things that I need. So that's number one. Number two, Jack Reese wrote a book called Positioning and Niching. And it talked about, again, a level of focus. It helped me self-discover that being in mortgage, it's just a ton of different people out there. You got to make a lot of noise to be able to stand out. So how do I create a niche myself in mortgage? And then I went and found out, okay, John Maxwell does a certification for coaching. So that's I could be a leadership coach. Then also Gary Keller himself does a certification for coaching realtors. So I found like three, Brian Buffini was a data, database certification coach for your database. So when he got certified to all three of them, and then I started building a niche in the mortgage space of me coaching realtors. I would coach you for free. This is what I'll teach you. This is what I'll help you get your case going. And as I as they grew their production, I got more referrals. I got more referrals, more, more referrals. So from 2011 to like 2017, I became just uh, everything, anything, being a real estate coach, real estate agent coach, which helped the mortgage business really thrive because that was the number one referral partner. And that helped us get to $100 million in loans. And then the uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad has to be up there for sure. I mean, I think that that book really changed things. So if you ask me those three, it'd be The One Thing by Gary Keller, Jay Papazan, Positioning, Niching by Jack Reese, and then the third one being Rich Dad, Poor Dad by um, Robert Kiyosaki. Kiyosaki. Yeah. So anything on the life side, obviously I can tell you're very intentional with your family and your boys based on what you've shared already. Was there one on the life side of the equation where you're like, this changed my mind on how I parent or how I am a husband, anything over there? Um, so I golf. So there's a great book by Dr. Rattel, I think it was called. Golf is not a game of perfect. That helped me go from like a 17 handicap down to a six handicap. And it really helped me understand how to have fun and be mentally engaged to golf in, in on the course but also learn how to score mentally, not just score physically, which gave me a lot of great course management. Number one. Number two, obviously Miracle Morning. That's really helped on a massive amount. Obviously, we talked about that. And then there's one called Loved. I mean, it's part of the series, but the five levels of love language. That was a oh, great yeah. one also. That really helped me. My wife and I, we've had a great marriage. Our relationship took off. Once I learned to love my team and their love language, our relationship took off. And it helps you self-discover. The more you make it about others, the the more they make it about you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Well, sure. I'm watching the clock. I know we're we're backing right up to a call that you've got to hop on. So first off, I just want to say on my side, Wally, thanks so much. I've loved the conversation. Flew quickly, blink of an eye. But last question I want to end with, obviously, this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. We've danced all around it. But if you had to define what does Do Business, Do Life mean to Wally, how would you put that into words? Simply a 24-7 mindset. You know, the, the whole point of 24-7 is the, I golf three, four times a week. And if you golf three, four times a week, there's only 24 hours left in the week to work. I take 20 weeks of vacation a year at minimum. It's 10 weeks of my family that my sons pick where we're going on a family vacation. I go five weeks, five weeks a year with my wife, just her and I on vacation, and I do five golf trips a year. So if you golf 20 weeks in a year, there's only seven months left in the year to work. So I built a business that pays me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And only I only have to work in it 24 hours a week, seven months a year, which allows me to have a very blessed lifestyle. Sounds like uh, you're doing it by design. I'm sure you've probably crossed paths with my buddy, Justin Donald on Lifestyle Investor at this point. I know I you've got not. a bunch of the... If you make, well, I'm, I'm going to have to make the introduction because that's uh, he's out of Austin. So he's not too nice. far from you. Him and John Israel, actually, we're both in Cutco together. So... I'll have to make that introduction, but it sounds very aligned with his take too. So Wally, appreciate the time, my man. And uh, I'll have to look you up next time I get through Dallas for business. So nice to meet virtually. Yeah, absolutely. Then I'll uh, I'll connect with you via email. So I love to have you about my podcast and then to kind of share more about your 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 space and your world. Awesome. Love to do it. Cool. All right. All right see till you, next time, you. Wally. We'll see you. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye. Thanks for checking out this week's episode. On to this week's featured review. It comes to us from iTunes user 
V Garcia three, five stars. Jiu-Jitsu is life. This was my first introduction to this podcast. I regularly train in Jiu-Jitsu. So anytime that I hear about Jiu-Jitsu being integrated with other facets of life, I am all in. This show took parts of life that ordinarily feel confusing and rather daunting and made them feel more attainable through the lens of Jiu-Jitsu. This was one of the more profound and frankly life-changing talks I've listened to. Well, G. Garcia 3... For those that aren't aware, he or she is referencing the episode I did with Henry Gracie with uh, his book that he shared some of the concepts. And really what he did is he talked about how the concepts of jujitsu apply to business, apply to life. And uh, I will have to say it was one of the more impactful conversations I've had as well. So I uh, love that, that this kind of brought jujitsu, the, the shared love for that brought you into the DBDL podcast and uh, hope to continue to, to keep an eclectic guest list and apply concepts, frameworks, different things from different areas of life and business into the world of finance. That's one of my favorite things to keep it fresh and keep it fun here on the show. So thanks for listening in and we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. As we wrap, for access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from all of our show's guests, don't forget to visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners and other financial advisors out there that can benefit from the show. Trust me, it really does help. So thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations.